0: Hello, everybody. It is Volts for July 25th, 2022. Volts podcast, how Biden can address climate change through executive action. I'm your host, David Roberts. It now seems fairly clear that no climate legislation is going to pass this Congress before the midterm elections. After the midterms, Democrats are highly unlikely to retain control of both houses of Congress, so there likely will not be any federal climate legislation in the U.S. for many years to come. This is obviously to the country's immense shame. It means Biden finds himself in the same situation that Obama ended up in. If he wants anything at all to get done on climate change during his term, he's going to have to do it himself through executive action. He has already begun announcing some executive orders. However, there is a case to be made that the president has the power to do much, much more. Two senior attorneys at the Center for Biological Diversity, Gene Sue, director of their Energy Justice Program, and Maya Golden Krasner, deputy director of their Climate Law Institute, have been aggressively making the case for the past three years, laying out a broad suite of actions available to a president and accompanying them with arguments rooting those powers in statutory authority. They've just released a new report called The Climate President's Emergency Powers, which digs into what it would mean for Biden to declare a state of emergency over climate change and what sorts of powers that would grant him. In this moment of utter legislative failure, I wanted to talk to Sue and Golden Krasner about the kinds of things Biden is capable of doing, which actions he ought to prioritize, how he should think about the hostile Supreme Court, and the political optics of governing so aggressively and unilaterally. All right, uh, Jean Sue and Maya Golden Krasner of the Center for Biological Diversity. Thanks for coming to
1: Volts. Thanks for having us.
0: So there's a lot to discuss. Yes. <laughs> a lot to discuss here. So I just want to st- start maybe with this sort of background assumption. Let's just assume, for the sake of our conversation, that Build Back Better does not miraculously <laughs> rise from the ashes. And and pass in the next whatever, however much time we have to pass it, a week or two, let's just assume that it's dead, dead, that legislation is dead, dead, and that as all odds are pointing to, that all the prognostications now say that Democrats are almost certainly going to lose at least one House of Congress in the midterms, which will mean legislation is dead for the rest of Biden's term. That leaves us (laughs) with what Biden can do on his own. Uh, You know, the very, this has all um, happened before and it will all happen again. As they say on Battlestar Galactica, this was exactly the situation Obama found himself in, as we all remember. So it's a little depressing to be back here, but let's make the best of it. So the other thing I wanted to say just by way of preparation is I think it's fair to say that y'all that the CBD has what I would characterize as a sort of maximalist interpretation of Biden's executive powers, sort of extremely sweeping, you know, your 2019 report on the executive powers available to the president. I mean, if you read through that whole thing, I mean, geez, Biden could just sort of revolutionize all of government and all of industry and, and justice, and there's almost nothing he couldn't do under some legal authority or another. So I might be throughout this playing a little bit of devil's advocate trying to push back a little bit on some of that. So, just to just to let you know. So, with all that said, let's start with what seems to be most in the news these days, which is whether or not Biden's going to declare a climate emergency. There's a lot of talk about this, a lot of hand waving, a lot of sort of <laughs> I I don't think it's very well understood what exactly means for him to do that and what it would enable him to do. So let's just start there. Maybe we'll start with you, Gene. Maybe you can just tell us what does it mean for Biden to declare a climate emergency? What is the legal authority under which he would do that? And then, then we can get into sort of what it would enable him to do that he couldn't otherwise do.
2: Um, so I think you've painted a really bleak picture of where we are right now. Um,
0: uh, look around, Jean.
2: <laughs> and it's very real. And this is exactly, um, you know, where we hope we wouldn't be. But it didn't also take a crystal ball to, to let us know that we would be here as well. And so I think on that note... You know, one of the things that we have um, at the center have always focused on is the executive branch, and that is, you know, an equal branch of the three branches. And we've always um, have looked at what are the available tools for the president not to the exclusion of anything else. We absolutely need legislation. I pray that your prediction is not true um, on legislation. Uh, And and we hope and pray, you know, best wishes for that legislation to pass because (laughs) we need it. (laughs) Thoughts and (laughs) prayers. Um, So I, you know, I, I think one of the things when people have talked about the climate emergency in the last few days is this fear that It is to the exclusion of everything else. And that is absolutely, from our point of view, not true. Um, We would want every single agency, every single executive power within President Biden's quiver to essentially be utilized Um, and this also is not something that you know we advocate only at this moment in time when legislation is you know a question mark it is something that we have always felt every single presidency should begin with Um, in concert working as hard as possible uh, because we have truly the emergency of our planet on our hands right now so every single tool available to us should be at least considered Um, And considered wisely, thoughtfully, um, with the understanding that we need kind of everything that we can get right now, um, Mm -hmm. everything to fight this thing. So, um, giving kind of that overview um, of what of our our standpoint on all of this. So, a climate emergency declaration would have two different uses um, on a very broad. Level, a climate emergency declaration that's paired with bold actions would be a clarion call that we need right now for climate leadership. I think, you know, the picture that you painted um, is absolutely a picture of despair, and that is where so many people are right now. And I think there is a real need for. The president to not only acknowledge that we are in a climate emergency, but really to seize that mantle of leadership right now and say, hey, we're in a climate emergency and I am going to do everything in my power to make sure that within my administration, we combat this as hard as possible, because it is unacceptable that there are 100 million people in this country right now on high heat alert that the world is literally burning with 80 wildfires, and that so many communities in this country are experiencing this not just today, but from the fossil fuel economy violence of the past decades. So that on a leadership level is so important to unlock and unleash the momentum of everybody to put out what they can to fight this, whether it is states, local governments, as well as other global leaders, um, which is something we can totally talk about from an international standpoint, and that's, that's a lot of what we work on as well. Separately, the Climate Emergency Declaration would potentially unlock emergency powers. Emergency powers are a whole subset of executive powers that are just part of the greater suite of executive powers that we have been advocating for in the 20, you know, for decades, essentially at the center. Um, But, you know, to unpack the subset of emergency powers Maya and I went through uh, the emergency power statutes, which include four different statutes. The first is a National Emergencies Act. The second would be the Defense Production Act. The third is the Stafford Act. And the fourth is the Public Health and Services Act.
0: The Declaration of Emergency itself, is the power to do that under one of those particular laws? Like, what is the uh, authorizing sort of statute to the declaration itself?
2: Yeah, so I think when people say declaration of a climate emergency, that could be interpreted in different ways, but one of them is the National Emergencies Act. Mm -hmm. So under the National Emergencies Act, the president would declare an emergency, and that essentially triggers uh, 130-some statutory authorities, Um, but he has to actually pull something specific when he declares the emergency, if he wants it to actually have some type of action. So under that framework of 130 so statutory authorities, we've identified some of the most climate progressive ones that he could potentially think about when he would pull the National Emergencies Act. And so, you know, the the top ones of that for us um, would be looking at reinstating the crude oil export ban that was uh, basically overturned after 40 years in 2015 that would be the equivalent of shuttering 42 coal plants.
0: To bring in the devil's advocate thing, you know, the sort of traditional, I think, conventional wisdom here is if you cut off crude exports from the U.S., you're going to suppress U.S. production a little bit, but other countries will just ramp up their production to make it up. And other countries often have dirtier production than we do. So wouldn't that reduction in greenhouse gases be a little bit of an illusion? I mean, wouldn't that just be a reduction of our greenhouse gases, but not overall greenhouse gases? How do you address that common argument?
2: Yeah, so that argument um, has been countered by folks at uh, SEI, Stockholm uh, Economics Institute, and it's it's not the case. They find that if you do shut down oil production here in the United States or other parts of the world, it won't necessarily mean that it'll pop up somewhere else. And so the analysis that we've seen with the 42 coal plants analysis takes that into account. Um, and that's, you know, that's that. So, you know, I, I think the other part of this, though, is looking at I think that gets into greater supply-side arguments, which we can totally go into right now because that is a common break and debate.
0: A lot of these executive moves you're talking about have to do with...
2: Supply-side work.
0: Supply-side slowing or cutting off either domestic production or uh, exporting. So might as well get into it now. why, Why should we think that the U.S. cutting back on production or exporting would have this global effect?
1: Well, first of all, I mean, as as Jean says, there's been significant research that shows that ending production or slowing down production actually results in a net global reduction of use of fossil fuels. So it's not actually true that, you know, for every barrel that we stop producing, we import another barrel from somewhere else or we need another barrel from somewhere else. That's not actually how it works. Fossil fuel supply actually helps drive demand. So From our perspective, climate policy has to address both. And, you know, we've really spent decades trying to reduce fossil demand. And really, our our policies have focused on that critically, but not supply. And here we are in today's climate crisis. And it's a policy failure that we can avoid by reducing supply and demand at the same time. On top of that, We have enough oil in our existing leases right now to meet demand. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, there's already way more fossil fuels under production and planned. And the fossil fuel industry is planning huge projects going way into the future that can safely be burned to stay under 1.5 degrees Celsius.
0: Yes, this is a crucial background fact. I just want to you know, put an exclamation point next to it. I, I feel like listeners to this podcast probably know this by now, but at this point, it's been analyzed up and down a million ways. If current oil and gas fields produce to their capacity, we're going to shoot past 1.5, never mind exploiting new oil and gas fields, right? So when it comes to oil and gas, there's, there's no margin left, really.
1: Exactly. So climate science is showing us that that 40% of already producing deposits have to stay in the ground to avoid the catastrophes of 1.5, just as you said. So, But at the same time, we've got fossil fuel companies who there's a new study out showing they make $3 billion a day in pure profit. Mm. And so they're looking at, you know, they're looking at undeveloped reserves of up to according to this study, a $100 trillion. And so they're not giving up, they're going to push and push and push and push. So we, we can't ignore that they've got money to, you know, buy politicians to file lawsuits, they're constantly pushing and pushing. And so we really our climate policy can't just focus on renewables without pushing back on what the fossil fuel industry is doing.
0: But let me toss in here and we're getting ahead of ourselves again into the international stuff. But it's it seems notable that there are other sort of analogous um, wealthy democracies, you know, like Norway or whatever, that are doing a lot on climate change on the demand side. But they aren't particularly cutting back on production. Is there a – I mean, would we be the first to really grab on to this or, or, is, or is there an example of another country that is attacking Both demand and supply.
2: Yeah. So there are. um, There's a new. I think you've nailed. You know, whatever whatever the expression is. But that that is essentially the problem that we face. Right. There are hypocritical policies. Saudi Arabia actually exports um, a ton of their oil because they profiteer more from that, and also are electrifying themselves using solar. Mm -hmm.
0: I mean, that's you say it's hypocritical, but it's the standard. I mean, that's the that's the standard among oil and gas producing Absolutely. countries.
2: Absolutely, and it is the standard that has gotten us to the climate emergency and the climate catastrophe that we are here right now. Right. The U.S. has an exceptionalism reputation that it it you know it feels it feels and fuels itself with, um, and I think we have been so furious at urging these movers and these oil and gas producers to change their tune. We absolutely have to, because that is what science is telling us to do. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, would the US be one of the first to do it? Um, Absolutely. Would that be a game changer and a signal to the rest of the world? Absolutely. Is that what we need to actually keep our emissions down? Absolutely. And so these are the hard choices that need to be made in a political atmosphere where fossil fuel companies, really have such deep, deep influence on every single part of our government and these choices.
1: Mm -hmm. There's no world in which we are safe, in which the U.S. continues to produce oil and then exports it like the other, like Australia. You know, we can't can't continue to extract fossil fuels and send it away to be burned elsewhere or to be turned into petrochemicals or plastics, which are very toxic processes themselves that also pollute the planet.
0: Well, I mean, the conventional wisdom, the conventional approach is just all the countries of the world join hands and reduce their demand in concert. And that is what ends up reducing supply because there's no demand for the supply. You just don't buy that model.
2: Well, I mean, you know, we've we've been going to the climate change negotiations for the last uh, 17 years and um and we that was the initial idea about the treaty. Right now, um when the Paris Agreement and all of its predecessors were crafted, none of them had the word fossil fuels in them. <laughs> and that is purposeful. It is purposeful that all of those climate change COPs have been sponsored by fossil fuel companies. Um, It was only last year for the first time that we finally got fossil fuels into the decision that came out of last year. And that is after decades of this type of agreement system. But one thing I did want to get back to you, Dave, is that there is a new alliance called the Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance. Mm -hmm. And this actually is set up to get first movers on their way. Um, It is led by Costa Rica and Denmark. So small countries. But these are countries actually trying to deal with both Uh, supply and demand at the same time. And they are pushing different states like California, et cetera, to basically get on that same train. And that's the type of leadership that we need right now. And, you know, yes, would it be unprecedented if the American government did that? Absolutely. And that would be the shining star of what we need right now for the climate (laughs) catastrophe.
0: All right. Well, we're going to return to the political economy questions Later, I, I feel like I jumped ahead too much. We had the whole discussion about, about supply side, but let's return to the power. So the first thing Biden could do that would be enabled by the emergency declaration is reimpose the crude oil export ban. So let's go down the list again. What's number two?
2: So, number two, um, well, it depends on where you want to go, whether you want to go finance or, or renewables. Uh, (laughs) Um, but let's, let's, let's go for finance because a lot of people are, are interested in this one. Um, there is a, a, another power that is the most frequently invoked NEA power. Um, and that is with the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, which we belovedly call IEPA. (laughs) And IEPA is, um, evoked every single year by a president at least once. Um, We've seen it this year already with the ban on Russian imports of oil by President Biden. Um, And it essentially allows the president to control commerce um, when it's necessary to deal with with a threat, with an outstanding threat. Hmm. So one way that we think that he could use this on fossil fuels um, or climate in general is that he could actually stop the hundreds of billions of dollars every year that leave from the United States private institutions towards fossil fuel projects abroad. And the single analysis um, that has, you know, basically this is as much as um, public organizations have been able to garner is that in 2020, 16 American financial institutions shipped out $470 billion to fund 12 fossil fuel expansions that uh, are are going to be emitting 175 gigatons of additional CO2, which is actually almost half of our remaining carbon budget.
0: So this would be literally like, if he did this, that would render those loans like literally illegal? Like, I guess I'm I'm wondering about sort of the enforcement uh, or or the legal regime around it. If he just declares a, a climate emergency, declares this, you know, no more financing of international fossil fuel projects, and then you know, some bank sends a loan somewhere. Like, do you send the police to the <laughs> to the bank? How, how does that work?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yes, correct. Uh huh. So, so they are sanctions, um, and it has been done on individuals in the United States. It has been done on companies during the apartheid era in South Africa. If anybody was sending finance right, or right. goods over to South Africa, yes, if you do that, you you will be sought after. That is against the law.
1: Right now, it's in place for financing Russian businesses, for example. Mm-hmm. So, and it's under the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, or IEPA.
0: Right, right. And so, has there been a case of that being enforced? Like, is, do you have a case of like a company getting dinged for doing that, or, yes. or is it mostly obeyed? It,
2: it, so, it is obeyed, and there are um, sanctions on those who violate it. And when I say this is normal, this is the most normal emergency power that is used every single year. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are violations and there's general compliance as well.
0: So there's kind of a, there's a there's an infrastructure set up to, to enforce it.
2: Mm-hmm. There is a very robust infrastructure with AIPA to set this
1: up. It's been in place for also for transactions with Iran and mm-hmm. um, fossil fuel financing as well. So um, often it's used, up for particular countries, but doesn't necessarily have to be.
0: Is it fair to say that this would be the most sweeping use of it? Because no you know, no financing fossil fuels is pretty big sweeping uh, prohibition. Is this notably more ambitious than those previous uses of it? Or do you think it's sort of in keeping?
2: I think it's in keeping to a certain extent um, because it's just, I, I mean, in terms of the amount of dollars, I think that we've You know, for certain countries that are sanctioned, for example, I think there there are billions of dollars involved with that. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, I I do think this is keeping consistent with the Biden administration's own view on finance towards fossil fuels. They themselves last year at the um, climate change conference did a historical pledge to stop putting public finance into fossil yeah, yeah. fuels. I remember that. And so this is, and we all um, were so, you know, I mean, that, that was a la- lot laudatory. And that, that was a great thing that Secretary Kerry has committed to do. So this would be an extension of that principle towards our uh private financial institutions and i think um given our you know different discussions that we've ha- we've had with uh you know people on the hill this one is also politically savory mm. and um it is a it's definitely um pulling finance from fossil fuel projects really kind of looking into our own footprint um, into the, the tremendous and dirty emissions that are happening abroad is just common sense. Um, and so I, I think that this one in particular is a powerful um, and important tool under the NEA.
0: Got it. Let's turn to boosting domestic production, which you um, have enabled by the Defense Production Act. So maybe just tell us a little bit, like, what is the Defense Production Act? And I know that Biden has invoked that. He's done some stuff Mm -hmm. (laughs) under that act. So maybe just tell us, like, what he's done and then sort of, like, the further steps you would like to see.
2: Um, So... Uh, the Defense Production Act is my favorite statute of all time. Um, I, have, I have a very sweet spot in my heart for the Defense Production Act. Um, so the Defense Production Act is a, you know, it was made during wartime, during the Korean War. Um, and what it essentially allows it to do is it tells the president, allows the president to identify those materials and goods that we need right now for our national defense. And it allows him to, you know, marshal industry as well as other important stakeholders, bring them to a table, and say, "This is what we're missing. This is what we need to produce. Can you produce it? Um, and we will buy it from you, or figure out other ways uh, for it to to basically come to fruition." Um, so, you know, in a wartime setting, it's it is, it has been used for. We need to you know, manufacture tanks. So vehicle makers, mm-hmm. please start making tanks. Um, we right. need to manufacture artillery. So hunting gun makers start making that. And we will give you grants, loans, loan guarantees and or purchase agreements from the government um, to make sure that you feel secure as a company to make those types of moves. And, you know, the, the other thing it does is that industry, therefore, is working together. So it shields all of these players from working together from antitrust laws. Mm. So that is it is really an all hands on approach um, to critical materials. And one of the most incredible parts about the Defense Production Act, if you read um, it from you know front to end, is that there is a whole section about energy. Mm. Um, and there is a particular section about solar, wind and geothermal as critical materials for our energy security. Um, No kidding. When
0: was this? When was it written? (laughs) 50s. No kidding. Quite a bit of foresight there.
2: There is incredible foresight with this act. And so the way that we've um, thought about it through the climate lens is, through the clean energy and electric vehicle lens. Um, the US does not have the manufacturing base right now for those types of technologies. And in fact, we're seeing those technologies be made in some instances with weaker slave labor and other slave labor around the world. Um, so our what the Biden administration did, um, which was such a sea change in um, how it is approaching Climate change uh, is that it invoked the Defense Production Act to manufacture clean energy technologies. And these included solar, it includes heat pumps, insulation, and transformers. And these are all critical technologies that we need for our national defense against the climate emergency. And we were also, you know, particularly heartened to see some justice aspects that we had outlined in our in our blueprint that were also picked up. So when we talk about, you know, manufacturing, well, the question is where? Where should it be manufactured? Right. Um, this is a place where the Biden administration can intentionally choose areas that have been economically blighted. Um, they can with economic and environmental justice um, kind of communities as well so that they are filling their J-40 aspects. Um, And really choose, you know, and also with midterms coming up, choose places that may be helpful uh, in terms of of making sure that Democrats stay in power. (laughs) Um, So where manufacturing occurs actually has a really can have incredible benefits, uh, especially from a justice lens of, of where it needs to go and generate jobs.
0: So there are factories producing solar panels now in response to this and receiving government grants in response? Soon, like, is this happening? Soon,
2: hopefully. <laughs> so this was just passed in June um, and they are just getting their roundtables together now. Mm-hmm. And their round ta- so so we are on, it's already the end of July. And so we would say, Biden administration, please, like, you know, please act with more haste uh, and, <laughs> and, and speed it up. But, you know, there is a limiting factor here and the limiting factor is finance. And the there is a, a DPA fund out there. Ten billion just got injected um, for COVID purposes for the Defense mm. Production Act use. Um, so we actually have seen Congress, um, in this Congress actually, this like exact Congress, give ten billion dollars um, to to the Defense Production Act um, when Biden has pulled it for COVID. Um, we would, you know, obviously are, are trying to get as much uh, from this Congress now for these new clean energy funds. Um, We were successful recently in getting $105 million extra uh, from the House, and that is now being considered by the Senate. But that certainly isn't enough.
0: So to be clear, so the money that the government would use to incentivize the people doing the manufacturing in response to this has to be appropriated by Congress?
2: So traditionally, it has been appropriated by Congress, There are other ways, though, with existing budgets um, out there in the federal government that you could actually achieve the same effect. So, for example, we have a $650 billion federal procurement fund every year. um, And it's been, you know, the Biden administration has, has put out an executive order saying, please buy clean energy when you can. One way that manufacturers can actually feel more secure right now in making this transition is if we use those federal dollars and say, Hey, we commit to buying your goods as part of these Defense Production Act Clean Energy Orders. Um, that is one way that you can pair an existing budgetary amount with these DPA Clean Energy Orders. And there are other programs as well, like WAP, the Weatherization Assistance Program, the LIHEAP Program. And, and we would argue there's other kind of interesting ways to, to also leverage FEMA funds towards buying and purchasing and deploying renewable energy, um, as well as climate funds. Uh, we actually have technical assistance commitments that we've made abroad, where we could actually purchase American-made pieces and ship them abroad as well.
0: Intuitively, it seems to me that the amount of money necessary to create a domestic manufacturing (laughs) industry, or several actually, is just huge. I guess just intuitively, like that's a huge amount of money. And it's hard for me to believe that the government, even if it scrapes together all these piles of money, is really going to have just kind of the brute force cash to do that. Is this more of like a seeding or instigating kind of thing, like trying to channel private funds?
2: Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So the Defense Production Act is just a jump starter. We cannot afford to pay for every single solar panel (laughs) out there. Absolutely. So what we're looking for with the Defense Production Act is just that amount of investment that is enough to make manufacturers change, expand their factories, and actually start on new pieces of technology that are necessary. We already have fledgling pieces of this all over the country. And right now, it's just about boosting it and making them understand that this market is burgeoning. Um, and so we're not looking for the full, you know, we, I mean, we can't even get what we need for BBBA. <laughs> so um, we just need that seed funding and that investment funding. And it doesn't have to just come from the federal government. We have state government surpluses. My God. The this, you know California government is has a huge surplus right now. We have state governments. We have private companies first movers like Apple and Google, et cetera, who also may be interested in putting their private capital um, and and committing to purchasing non-Uyghur labor clean energy goods. So there's a lot of potential in what the DPA can do. And we're really heartened to see that in the clean energy orders. He can also further expand that to other technologies that we would need, for example, in the transportation sector uh, with electric vehicles, e-buses and charging stations.
1: One of the other helpful things too is that it can bring together industry all along the supply chain. Mm-hmm. So if there are supply chain disruptions or things that are also blocking the ability of companies to manufacture things here, it's a way to bring everybody together to figure out how can we coordinate, how can we um, unblock that that issue too. And there's also other financing mechanisms, like Jean was saying, and there's like public-private partnerships and. Loan programs through various departments of the federal government, too. So it's just really a great way to coordinate and be creative in terms of coming up with funding.
0: Okay. So, so far we have halting crude oil exports, cutting off private funding for international fossil fuel projects, we have uh, marshaling domestic manufacturing industries for clean energy technologies. Maya, is there a number four that you want to get in a mention of here?
1: Well, we can get into some of the um, production side issues. So, for example, we can suspend production on fossil fuel leases in our oceans, especially the Gulf and the Arctic under Oxlev. Under which now? <laughs> it's the Outer Continental Shelf Lands Act. Exactly. And so that's that's kind of a major one for fossil fuel production.
0: You mean that would stop all? Uh, like, what does that mean? Like how, how how big of a piece is that? How much um on, on the outer continental shelf is going on now, and how much would be cut off by that?
1: Well, there's a significant amount that's going on, especially in the Gulf, and and they're trying to open up more in Alaska, right. and so. The idea would be to suspend that production um, probably while they come up with a plan for kind of a managed decline of all production on in our federal waters and our public lands. Mm-hmm. So our emergency report is actually a companion piece, as Jean was mentioning at the beginning, to an original report from 2019 that was about um, Biden's ordinary executive powers. So, the idea would be to suspend the leases offshore and then come up with a plan for a kind of managed, thoughtful, intentional ramp down of our production and public lands and waters.
0: Uh, but uh, didn't Biden just recently notably not do that?
1: <laughs> he did recently notably not do that, which has been really frustrating because. One of the reasons that we'd like to see him do this climate emergency declaration is to really focus his policy. So he came into office saying, no new leases, no new leases. And then, you know, Russia invaded Ukraine and gas prices went up. He's like, oh, wait, whoops, maybe I'll do some leases. Maybe we should probably start doing this. So, you know, first of all, offering new leases for production is not going to affect gas prices. It's going to Oil companies right now are sitting on huge numbers of leases and not producing anything on those so they don't actually need new leases and secondly, we just need him to really focus on the climate emergency at hand and phase out production
0: um, you know there's the sort of generic argument about you know supply side versus demand side policy, but then there's also a more specific argument which is right now specifically, you know, there's this situation with Russia invading Ukraine. Russia is cutting off gas supply to some people, and there's this crisis. Like, you know, Europe is supposedly heading for uh, shortages, and and gas prices are uh natural gas prices are spiking. So, what about the argument that cutting back U.S. production at this particular moment, while the crisis of Russian gas is going on, is just going to make that crisis worse, make those gas prices even higher, make European shortages even worse? Like how do all these um, supply side things you're talking about interact in your mind with the Russia situation? Mm
1: -hmm. So first of all, I think it's important to note that we're not saying end all production tomorrow. Right. What we're saying is, you know, you don't need, first of all, you don't need new leases. You have plenty of land. Mm -hmm. You have plenty of production going on right now we're just at we're asking for an intentional managed decline while we ramp up renewable energy at the same time. And secondly, the oil industry is always going to have price spikes, economic pain and price gouging. As we said, they are making huge profits right now, 3 billion dollars a day and that's expected to be even higher this year while gas prices are up while people are hurting. So the solution to the Both the climate crisis and, you know, gas prices is really just to get off of oil as fast and transition as fast as possible to renewables, creating jobs in the process. You know, and and the other thing for domestically, oil prices are controlled by refineries, too, that also manipulate the market to keep prices high. So you'd see that the price of a barrel of oil went down long before gas prices went down here because the refiners were artificially manipulating how much they want to manufacture in order to maximize
0: their profits. Yeah. I, I'm not sure people appreciate that when Biden goes to oil companies and says, please produce more so that we can lower the price of your product. <laughs> you know, like companies don't generally want to reduce the price of their product. Exactly. Companies generally like when the price of their product is high. Like it's it's serving the oil industry quite well for <sighs> – for these sort of, uh, you know, temporary shortages to be jacking prices up. Like they don't, they're not super incentivized to ramp up production. Biden in. really
1: doesn't have any leverage there. Yes. yes.
2: <laughs> I, I You know, so much of the inflation issues that we're seeing right now is purposeful price gouging by oil and gas companies. Uh, you know, Mayor Pete was talking about this the other day in his explainer of, of all of this and how he doesn't understand, um, why gas price, you know, oil prices fell a bit, but gas prices are still, you know, still artificially up there. Um, so I think it is important for us to recognize the very thoughtful and intentional way that oil and gas companies are controlling what is happening right now. Um, and that the supply issues, Um, Going on in in the long run for us to really deal with inflation and fossil fuel price volatility The one way to actually get out of that is to get off of oil and gas And that is completely antithetical to any new leases Any new leases that are allowed right now are basically locking us into decades more of that type of dependence And that is the opposite way we need to go for energy independence
1: And if you think about it, I mean, every dollar that we're spending right now to push fossil fuels is a dollar that is not going to renewable investment. And so Mm -hmm. we we just really need to be pumping everything we can to make that transition as fast as possible. And we're not saying it's going to be painless, but we have no choice at this point.
0: And that power that you're just discussing, Maya, um, is not an emergency power. That's just something the president can do. (laughs) something that that is within presidential authority, the continental shelf thing, or is that an emergency thing?
1: So in order to suspend production on leases in our oceans, that's an emergency power.
0: What about on public
1: lands? On public lands. uh, So what he can do is every time they kind of update their um, resource management plans, which are their Mm -hmm. sort of their overarching plans on what lands are going to be open for leasing, where is there going to be production They can say these lands are not going to be open for leasing. We're not going to lease these anymore, for example. Um, So that's ordinary powers. Um, The Department of Interior can also withdraw leases if they were issued illegally or as a result of fraud. Mm. And there's an argument there that the oil companies have been operating on the fraudulent basis for years and have been deceiving.
0: Because of hiding their knowledge of climate change because of that Mm -hmm. or, or something?
1: Yeah, You know, and as I said, areas that haven't been leased yet can be withdrawn from consideration under ordinary powers under OXLA or through the resource management plans for public lands. And then for places that are legally producing right now, they wouldn't be shut down tomorrow, but they would be sort of thoughtfully ramped down. And actually, whenever oil companies sign leases, in their leases, they come with um, clear language that says that the leases are subject to restrictions, including the possibility of lease suspensions or limitations on rate production. So they've already signed that they understand that that's sort of comes with the deal of having a leasing our public resources.
0: Got it. All right. We've covered quite a bit of power that Biden has, although I, I should emphasize here to a listener that we have barely scratched the surface. I would <laughs> encourage him to go uh, check out your 2019 report. It is uh, capacious in its detailing of sort of uh, his powers to do various things uh, on the supply and on the uh, uh, demand side. But before we uh, use up all our time, I want to get to a couple of, I guess, political questions, what you call political questions. To begin with, the Supreme Court, uh, the Supreme Court, uh, yes, is cartoonishly bad at the moment and looks to be bad, uh, you know, geez, for the rest of our lifetimes. So, to what extent is Biden executive action constrained by the Supreme Court? Like, I, my, just my assumption is anything he does, somebody's going to sue and it may or may not end up at the supreme court. So, I guess I guess my question is how confident are we in the legal case for these things and what do you you sort of what do, do are you nervous about the supreme court's jurisdiction over this stuff?
1: Being nervous about it, I guess, isn't really isn't really the issue because it is what it is. So, all of the actions that we recommend are solidly grounded in existing law. We want Biden's actions to be upheld of in courts. And we crafted the recommendations, we think, to achieve that. But that said, the unfortunate current reality is that the fossil fuel industry and red states are going to sue over anything that Biden does, like you said. Mm -hmm. It could be minor and incremental. And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of the times we're seeing the outcome of the cases decided not on the strength of the legal claim, but the identity of the judge who decides it, including at the Supreme Court. Yep. You know, some issues, some setbacks are inevitable, but there's going to be some cases that are brought before fair judges who are going to uphold them. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, we don't see the Supreme Court as a reason for inaction, but more as a reason for Biden to act even more urgently. I think one example of what you're saying, you know, that they're going to challenge anything is that when Obama's EPA first adopted the Clean Power Plan, it and some big environmental groups said, OK, this is the way to go, not some not a bolder move under the Clean Air Act, because it saw it as this small incremental step that the Supreme Court would definitely uphold. And look what happened. So,
0: yep. um,
1: you know, so we think that it's important to take emergency actions that are going to save lives, make the world a better place and just. Have Biden enact them. And if the Supreme Court strikes it down, then Biden should get up and use his bully pulpit to explain why it's such a problem. You know, explain what's so important about enacting bold climate measures.
0: Also on the Supreme Court, I mean, you could see them ruling against this or that specific executive order for this or that specific technical legal reason, but is there anything like, like, you know, when it comes to the EPA case, there's this major questions doctrine, mm-hmm. which, you know, depending on what side of the bed John Roberts gets up on, <laughs> yeah. could theoretically cripple the EPA's ability to do it, almost anything. I'm, mean, You know, it's so right. vague. You, you could use it for almost any reason. You could take away a huge swath of the EPA's power. Is there something similarly sort of, legally radical that the Supreme Court could do to constrain the executive powers of the presidency in general? Or is this more of a battle by battle kind of thing?
1: I mean, I think it's a battle by battle thing. The Supreme Court's going to strike down whatever they feel like striking down. Like, (laughs) well, for example, you know, I I don't want abortion anymore. I'm striking this down. I'll make up a reason. It's, you know, based on what people in the 15th century thought about abortion. (laughs) That's fine. I'll just make it that, you know, and so um, you know, our hope is that if Biden takes these really bold actions and, and people see that they're life saving and, and they kind of start down the path, they're going to be harder to reverse. So that's one hope. And
2: I would I would say many of I mean, you know, Maya had said this, but the powers that we have you know elucidated, especially for the emergency powers, those are actually quite straightforward powers. Mm. Uh, literally, the crude oil export ban says if the president declares a national emergency, he can reinstate the crude oil expert. Like there, there's not much interpretation there. Right. The interpretation there that people are arguing now that you know you see a little bit in the news is this question about emergency. What is an emergency? Um, and that can have you know be debated about. Um, that in fact was was litigated on during the border wall case, which I personally litigated. And oh, interesting,
0: because yes, Trump, Trump declared an emergency, right? How did that did. go? He
2: did, yeah. So, <laughs> um, really heartbreakingly, that border wall has been built. And that case and the, the litany of cases, there were cases brought in three different um, jurisdictions across the country to challenge this. Um, the lower courts actually found really good things. Uh, they found that his um, total trumping of um, <laughs> congress's bid to say you are not allowed to get over 1.2 billion but he went around their backs anyway to do it they found that was illegal that that was great um they also found that the way he was using the particular emergency power that he, he invoked which is redirecting military funds um, towards military purposes was also statutorily not correct because the border wall has nothing to do with the military. Um, so those, those were good findings under you know the district courts. It eventually trickled up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court vacated everything, and uh. <laughs> um, and the Biden administration <laughs> wah, wah, wah. Mo- mooted it out. But the the one um, in our case uh, in the DC district, one very good thing actually was um, came out of that decision and it was the fact that the term emergency is a political question, and that courts cannot uh,
0: Oh yeah, interesting. Yeah. I was gonna I was gonna ask about that so. Yeah,
2: absolutely. The
0: president's ability to decide what is and isn't an emergency, that's not within the courts. Like the court can't come in and say, We disagree that this is an emergency. I mean.
2: Well, the district court, at the very least, on this set of cases said that's a political question. (laughs) So (laughs) um, and in fact, that is a political question. The way that the National Emergencies Act was written is that it does not define the term emergency. Mm. It purposefully did not define that because it gives the president discretion to do that. In statutory language, what that means is that we rely on what is a common understanding. What is the dictionary definition of emergency? Mm -hmm. And so there are going to be arguments about whether a climate emergency is an emergency. I think for, you know, I I don't know how you feel, but with the world burning, literally burning Mm -hmm. right (laughs) now, I actually think that it it does qualify as as an emergency that one should act on. And so, you know, we're going to have those types of cases, I believe, if this comes up. And, I, you know, it's up to the courts to, to figure out whether the climate emergency is indeed an emergency. Um, and so those are the types of cases I think that that will come up. But one of the things that's really important from all of this is, you know, should you not try then just because it's going to be litigated? <laughs>
1: um,
2: I, and I think that's a that is isn't a common retort to many types of proposed new ideas and actions well it's going to be litigated well if this was a Republican administration we'd be lit I, I was litigating every day against Trump absolutely these things are going to be litigated but that is not the excuse to not try and the other kind of you know thing about it is oh well it's going to be reversed by the other side and you know that that's an argument
0: that was my next question because oh, we lived we lived <laughs> through this right we absolutely. lived through uh, Obama Um You know, having legislation taken away, basically resorting to executive action, and then just having either courts or the subsequent administration shoot down almost all of it.
2: And we also have seen gains at the same time. The things that we are asking for with respect to climate are jump-starting things that can actually start transforming the market we can actually use as much time as possible to get these actions jump-started. And at that point, if and when they do get struck, struck and down, there will be movement that would have been made. Mm-hmm. There will be less barrels of oil being extracted and poisoning communities. Mm-hmm. And for every day that we can stop a child right now who is suffering from the climate crisis because of that fossil fuel pollution otherwise, if we can just have a few more days of that, that works and that helps. And I think perversely, We have seen the border wall. The border wall was challenged. It was eventually mooted. But guess what? That border wall is still there.
0: Yeah, facts on the ground, as they say.
2: That is in the ground. That is an executive action that was essentially mooted out. But it is there and it is a monstrosity and it is still in its destructive mode. If we think about it that way in a perverse way, executive action actually does a lot. And even if it gets reversed later, it will have impacts. And hopefully on the pieces we are talking about, good impacts, that will last and trigger something much greater for the transition.
0: And and also, if Biden doesn't have Congress, what else is he going to spend his time doing? <laughs> <I> mean, right. <laughs> right.
1: Like, right. Yeah, I mean, he, he has so many, he has things that he should have been doing since day one. Not even emergency powers. I mean, he really could have been doing a lot of these things starting from the moment he took office. But he chose to wait Joe Manchin out. And look where that's gotten us. And so uh, now we're even further behind. And, you know,
2: Dave, like, I I think the point here is that this is not an either or decision. Absolutely, we need legislation and absolutely we need executive action. Um, I, I think like that bifurcation is just false. Mm-hmm. We need a both and, and we have needed that from day one. From day one, he could have stopped all new oil and gas leases. He actually went in the wrong direction. Um, from day one, he actually could have started producing less and less oil from existing leases. You know, he could have also increased the standards of our car emissions, which he has not raised oh. it to even back to what the Obama administration had. Oh. So these are pieces in his pocket that he has had. And if he declares a climate emergency, I would hope that at the very least it gets rid of these inconsistencies and it puts the fire under every single agency to really look at every single power that they have and go for it. Because we just don't have time to diddle daddle anymore.
0: <laughs> well, let me. As a final question, then, you know, let's talk about politics. Because I think it's fair to say that Biden himself is probably a sort of small C conservative, institutionalist. Uh, doesn't like to.
1: He's a senator.
0: Radical, yes. He's a, he's been a senator. You know, he was a senator for whatever a hundred and seven years. So <laughs> that's very deeply in his in in his bones. And I think the administration, probably as a whole, if you if you look at it, is pretty small z conservative. Has not really been willing to do things radical. I mean, one of the reasons, as you mentioned, is they're scared anything they do that's sort of bold or out of the ordinary or that goes against fossil fuels is going to absolutely put the final stake in the heart of any chance of legislation. But you know, as I think we've discussed, it looks like that ship has basically sailed at this point. But let's just talk about the politics of it, because it's not clear at all to me that this would be good politics for Biden. I mean, it would look like, and it would be characterized by the right, and probably a bunch of jerks in the mainstream media, as basically Biden couldn't get Legislation. He couldn't get people together to sign off on legislation. So now he's being a dictator and he's just ramming through the far left agenda and he's going to cut off our energy production that makes America great and he's going to raise energy prices. And you know, I don't, you don't have to guess at the kind of attacks that this would bring. So, and you know, like Biden doing a bunch of stuff that's unpopular. And then Democrats losing in 2024 and Republicans gaining a trifecta would be worse than anything uh, (laughs) you could imagine. So aren't y'all a little nervous, at least, about counseling this kind of thing? Do you think about the political implications? Do you worry about the political implications? Do you think I'm wrong about the political implications?
1: Well, there's a recent poll that shows that 58% of Americans actually say they would support a climate emergency declaration if BBBA doesn't pass, which it looks like it's not going to. And 80% of Americans think the government should be doing more to support climate. And, you know, we're seeing huge percentages, 100 million Americans under a heat warning. Um, We have fires raging across the country, across Europe. You know, I'm in the South, in California, people in the Southwest, we're basically facing a permanent, humongous drought right now. And so I think huge percentages of Americans are feeling the climate emergency in these palpable ways, and it's getting to a breaking point for people calling for change and the urgency of transformation
0: but it sure seems like freaking out about gas prices <laughs> like yeah. like they're like oh we're very concerned about climate change. Whoa, what? Gas prices? Never mind all that. Never mind all that. <laughs> Bring my gas prices down. It just doesn't I'm not sure that the the support for climate has the, the endurance or the depth that just the general American aversion to taxes and high prices has.
2: I think the—so to answer that question, yes, we think a lot about politics and Mm -hmm. um, how this would affect people and and what they're thinking. Um, I think a national climate emergency and the powers that he chooses to pull from there have to be extremely intentional. At the end of the day here, we're trying to protect the American public. And what they need to know right now is that they will have some safety in the face of the burning wildfires and heat waves that they they have right now, as well as the hole that's being burned in their budget because of this inflation. So there has to be um, absolutely an intentional plan for phasing out existing fossil fuels. That's not um, that's not something that is you know particularly controversial in any way. It's just we need to get off this. And at the same time, we are seeing so many people in the public really put those two together, that climate and everything that's happening and vulnerability to oil and gas really means getting off of it. We are seeing a better um, better understanding that solar and clean energy and e-vehicles, um, if they can actually be penetrated down to low-income communities, that people are very excited to get it. Um, We work with communities on the ground. You know, I think there's this polling out there and elites sitting in, you know, their desks and doing that. We get to talk to people on the ground who are suffering every day from this. And they're not, you know, big D's, little D's, whatever, you know, they're just normal everyday people who are really so scared about what is going to happen. And they know that the only way to get it out of this issue is to stop fossil fuels. Um, And so, you know, whatever the president does, it's about getting to that end, but doing in a way that is safe um, and that essentially protects our most vulnerable communities first. And I think there are absolutely ways that we can do that by using the many different executive powers that he has to map out that plan super intentionally.
1: Maybe he should just call the plan Making America Great Again. Uh, Maybe that'll work.
0: (laughs) Well, uh, this has been super illuminating. There's been so much vague talk about executive action lately. It's really nice to get some concretes and some specifics and and hash through them. So, Jean Sue and Maya Golden Krasner, thank you so much for coming and spending all this time.
1: Thank you. It's been fun. Thank you, Dave. It's been an honor and pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to the Volts podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf, so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.